There is nothing quite like the feeling of flying down a hill at like 65 miles an hour with nothing other than gravity doing that. There's something so liberating about that. I've spent a lot of time at Revelstoke. Revelstoke has the highest skiable vert in all of North America, 5,700 feet. They're renowned for their powder, but on dry days when it's groomers, it is just bliss. There's literally one run when you could talk for a whole minute. And it's just like, there's something so magical about that feeling. And I think all of your listeners can uh, associate with the, the, the joy of like being out in nature, um, this incredible scenery, these amazing conditions, being up early in the morning, being healthy, being active and going fast. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Gonna mix it up today something a little bit different for you and i'm very excited about that first make sure you subscribe to the storm skiing newsletter for free at skiing.substack.com i'm proud to announce that the storm skiing podcast now has a sponsor the storm skiing podcast is brought to you in part by mountain gazette founded in 1966 mountain gazette is a biannual large format print title celebrating mountain culture Head over to mountaingazette.com and enter code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off your entire order. And yes, that includes annual subscriptions in addition to their vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. Mountain Gazette returns in November in print form for the first time in eight years. These issues will sell out. Grab your subscription today over at mountaingazette.com. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 22, Benjamin Alexander, aspiring Olympic skier for the nation of Jamaica. Hey, you want to do something cool when you grow up? How about a career as an international DJ? Seriously, what's cooler than that? Traveling the world, hitting the best parties, running those parties. That's the kind of life you don't look back on regretting. My guest today lived that scene for a long, long time. Then he moved on to the one thing that may be cooler than that, a skiing career. It's an improbable story. Benjamin Alexander grew up in England. There's no snow skiing in England that I'm aware of, at least not outdoor snow skiing. In fact, the guy didn't click into skis until he was 32 years old. But he caught the bug, and when he retired, he knew there was one thing he wanted to do, ski as much as possible. If you're listening to this podcast, you can probably relate, but here's the thing. Benjamin took this thing to the next level and decided he wanted to become the first alpine skier to represent Jamaica in the Olympics. Why Jamaica? We're going to get into all of that here in the podcast, which, by the way, is the first time I've ever featured a conversation with a skier. Well, all my guests are skiers, but they're always here to talk about their mountain or their organization. So this one's going to be a little bit different. Let's hear it. My guest today is attempting to become the first alpine skier to represent Jamaica in the Olympics. He is a former international DJ who first clicked into skis at age 32. Benjamin Alexander is my guest. Benjamin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I still smile hearing at the, uh, still hearing the intro and the story. <laughs> well, it's, it's good to smile at times like this. It's been a very odd six months here, Benjamin, for all of us, I think. Yeah. How have you been doing? Have you been staying safe and healthy? I was super fortunate, actually. I, um, 
I was in Jackson Hole, Wyoming during the start of all of the madness. And, you know, obviously Wyoming wasn't really hit that hard at the start. It's still doing relatively well. It's one of the least densely populated states of the United States, if not the least. Um, and anyone that's been in that area knows that we have incredible backcountry terrain. So even though the uh, Jackson Hole Mountain Resort closed on the Sunday after we had 23 inches of new powder <laughs> in the previous 24 hours, even though they didn't let us ski it, um, I was able to get straight into the backcountry. We went out and grabbed some backcountry gear, and I literally skied 100 consecutive days. Um, wow. So I didn't skip a beat, and I, you know I feel very blessed. I'm down here in Jamaica right now. You catch me on the north coast near St. Anne's Bay, um, and it's a, a country whose economy completely revolves around tourism and stepping outside of that little bubble of Wyoming and coming to Jamaica, I, I kind of understanding how it's hit the rest of the world. Things are pretty bleak for a lot of other people that have maybe been laid off or, or their industries have completely shut down. You know, as you said in the intro, I used to be a DJ. So all of my friends who are performers or event organizers are, are facing a similar fate where there's just no work right now because you can't gather people together. So. I was okay, um, and I'm, I'm still I'm still doing well, but I, I've realized how it's affected a lot of people. Yeah, well, I do want to get into talking about Jamaica a little bit more and Jackson Hole. But first of all, I think anyone listening can tell by your accent, you probably didn't grow up in Jamaica, even though you're looking to represent them in the Olympics. Where did you grow up, Benjamin? Yeah, so I was born just outside of London um, in the county of Northamptonshire, and spent the first 23 years of my life, which then leads to the question, uh, what's the connection to Jamaica? So my father was part of the Windrush generation, a uh, generation of people that from all over the British Commonwealth moved to England in the late 50s and 60s to help with labor shortages. I mean, so many people um, died in the Second World War that England just needed more men basically to come and come and work. And so they had open arms to all of the countries from the Commonwealth. Jamaica used to be a former British colony. So my father moved to England at the age of five in 1961. Growing up then in England, did you have, I've read about the dry slopes they have over there, the dry ski slopes. Did you have any mm. of those nearby? Uh, the, the, there's one about, about 20, no, about, a, about an hour's drive away. But it's interesting because I, I just never really got into the sport at a, at a young age. It was never something that was really on my radar. My, my parents didn't ski. No one I knew skied um, until I went to private school uh, at the age of 11. And then some of those kids, you know, well-to-do, uh, middle-class, upper-class kids were, were skiing. But it was, it was just never on my radar at a young age. Yeah, and, and where were they skiing? Because I, I think there's some snow skiing up in Scotland, right? But were they were they going down to the Alps to ski? Yeah, so the majority of British people went uh, would go down to the Alps. It's kind of like the easy access to the best skiing. Um, I remember being super sad that we couldn't afford for me to go on one ski trip when all the kids went to Canada one year. I must have been about fourteen. Yeah, you know we take it for granted. If you grow up in a cold place anywhere in America, there's going to be ski hills, and sometimes they're small and whatever, but they're there, and that gives you that first introduction to it, but. Growing up around London, if you don't have access to it and you can't get down to France, it's like there's not really that opportunity to try it out. Absolutely. So, so I say that for the most part, to have been introduced to skiing at a young age, you have to be blessed in one of three areas. So as you just mentioned, geographically blessed is one of them. If you have a hill that's in your backyard, you can pretty much get access to it for cheap. You can pick up some secondhand equipment or you, know, you can get on there and off peak hours. Um, if you don't have geographic blessing, then 
you need financial blessing and that you have the ability to travel to ski hills, um, whether that's by you know, planes, trains, or automobiles or whatever it may be. And the third one is you need to be blessed in that if your parents did it or people around you, close to you, even an auntie, uncle, friend group, whatever, then you're more likely to have um, an insight to the sport and, and catch it at a young age. I had none of those three. Yeah, so you took the roundabout route and, and you had a really interesting path to get there. Um, no exposure to skiing, but you ended up as an international DJ. Take us into that, Benjamin. How old were you when you got involved in DJing and what attracted you to that? Yeah, so I was 17 years old when I bought a pair of, when I first bought a pair of turntables. So that was February of the year 2000. And basically what had happened is this was before YouTube and before a lot of the other streaming platforms that we have online right now. What would happen is I had a group of friends uh, in my home county that were just like me. They were um, either from the Caribbean or half, the, one of their parents were from the Caribbean. And like my parents had left London to afford cheaper housing before you know their kids were born. Um, and so what would happen is we would be in a car literally every second or third weekend going back to the city. And back then, pirate radio stations were rife. These were illegal setups that were, were all over the city. You couldn't flick more than 0.1 on the dial before getting the next radio station. And this would be our access to what is was then called and still kind of called now underground music. So these are the kids, my friends would, would come back from their various sections of the city with these mixtapes that they'd recorded from, from the radio. And I was just blown away by the energy and, and the vibes that I was listening to on these tapes. Um, but at that age, I wasn't even you know 18. I wasn't able to get into a nightclub to hear it, which would be where the music was being played. Um, and it wasn't available online or, or, or on YouTube. As I said, it didn't exist back then. So the only way for me to get access to that scene was to recreate it. So that's what I did. I bought turntables. Um, I bought records. And, and within a few short months, uh, the following year, I was actually playing on pirate radio stations myself in London. So that was the start of it. That's how I got into it. How do you even break into that? Because it's, you know, as you said, it's this illegal setup. So you have to, it's one of these things where it seems like you have to know the right people to trust you, to introduce you to it. So how did you break into that scene? Yeah, exactly. So it was my... One of my good friend's younger brothers was an MC. So the MC would be the guy that's kind of like the compare on top of, uh, on top of the music. Was he, had, he was still living in South London uh, in Clapham. Uh, yeah, in Clapham and Catford, that, those areas. Um, and they were affiliated with a, a radio show. It was uh, 95.9 and Tice FM. I still remember that, actually. Um, and so by virtue of being friends with them and them coming up to my small town of Wellingborough um, to kind of, you know, I would mix and, th and they would MC. Um, they thought I was good. And so eventually I got an invitation to come down and, and perform in London with them when I moved to London that following year. And you started out with live shows or were you doing a radio show? Uh, I started out with live shows. Uh, well, a radio show. Yeah. And w was it a recorded show or was it you, you'd be live at a certain time it, of the week? Yeah, it would, it would be a live thing that would happen once a week. And true to kind of pirate radio form, you'd have this burner phone, which was a a pay-as-you-go cell phone number that would only be active for a couple of weeks so that you couldn't be tracked. And people would kind of like send in requests and, and, and send in compliments and everything else that you would send into a radio show. And quite frequently, the radio station would have to move because um, the police were keen to kind of close these things down. In England, it's uh, very strict with regards to the FM broadcasting licensing laws. Uh, and the types of things you have to broadcast are also very strict. So quite often, radio stations would have to move to prevent the equipment and um, music being confiscated, which is what would happen if they would find you. And so how did you transition from that to 
doing live events and then from doing live events to touring internationally. Right. So there's a big leap in the middle here. I was DJing all the way through for about two or three years at that point. And then I kind of lost interest in the type of music I was playing. I was playing a type of music that was called garage uh, music that was heavily influenced by drum and bass, uh, dubstep, uh, and a lot of Jamaican influences, actually. Uh, at the time, I was going to the Imperial College of Science, Technology, and Medicine and studying physics, and I was just kind of living two worlds, and I decided that um, I, I kind of lost interest in that particular scene. It was very violent. Um, I'd seen tear gas canisters thrown into crowds. I'd seen gunfights and just really weird things that I didn't want to be associated with. So, so I left that alone. Um, I also dropped out of my first university, went back to university to study electrical and electronic engineering at UCL, and along the way had, had exposure to Asia. I decided very definitively that once I'd graduated, I wanted to move to Asia. That's exactly what I did. Three days after my last exam, I, I jumped on a plane with a one-way ticket, uh, 400 bucks in my bank account and no idea what I was going to do, and basically spent almost 10 years in Asia. When I got to Asia, I started to collect a different genre of music, house music, um, mm. you know, which is famous for like, you know, Ibiza, famous for coming from Detroit, all of those kind of places. And it wasn't until I moved to Hong Kong in 2009 that I just had access to the right group of people that were partying with the right group of people that I decided that I wanted to kind of take this thing seriously. Now, at the time, I appreciate I'm jumping around a little bit, but at the time I was working a full-time job in finance, in wealth management, but I'd gotten to the point where I was doing well enough with the two or three gigs a week that I was doing in Hong Kong and Macau that I decided that I would go full-time with this and see where it would take me. And, and, and that was in 2010 when I, when I kind of like last worked in an office like that. From there, it just kind of exploded. I became affiliated with some of the people that go to Burning Man uh, every year. Uh, and, and very quickly, um, not only did I, become, did I become a resident DJ for one of the largest sound stages at Burning Man, it's called Robot Heart, um, but I also became involved in, with choosing the other DJs that would perform on that stage, programming the event, as it were. Uh, and that kind of just catapulted me uh, into international, being being known internationally. And so the gigs just started really flowing in 2012, I would say. So you did that for a while, and that's certainly a fun change of pace from finance, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, <laughs> and that takes you eventually to Whistler, right? Yeah, well, actually, it eventually took, it, it, first, before Whistler, it took me to Micah, which is a heli ski lodge in British Columbia as well. Um, it, it's one of the best heli ski lodges in the world. And a friend of mine who I'd met through the music scene, he also joined the same Burning Man camp that I did back in 2011, is a, a complete fanatic about skiing. He organizes this annual ski trip to this heli ski lodge. And in 2015, he decided that he would take over the lodge for, for Christmas. Um, typically, they shut it down, send everyone home. He managed to convince them that, you know, why not just let us stay in the lodge? You can send all of the pilots back because you can only get in and out of the lodge by helicopter. Um, and, and we'll host Christmas there. And that's exactly what we did. Initially, I had some reservations because I, I didn't know how to ski. But uh, Tom, as his name, was like, look, it, it's five-star accommodation. You guys can be part of the contingent to make sure the jacuzzi is hot, the beer is cold, and the food is good. And if you want, you can do snowshoeing and get out there. It's a stunning place. Come and, come and do it. So eventually I came. And on one of the days, they had arranged for us to get into the helicopter and meet the skiing group at the top of the hill for lunch. 
And at the top of this mountain, I was just blown away by what was what was going on, like the, the scenery. I'd never seen snow like that before in my life. And I just decided there and then that, you know, I'm having the best time of my life just being one of the quote unquote house cats. But these guys, the 20 other guys that are on top of the eight house cats are jumping out of helicopters and skiing this stuff every day. And I decided, right, I'm not coming back until I can actually ski this stuff. So two months later, I was DJing in Rio and I got a, a, a gig request to come up to Whistler uh, and ski at a swingers party in Whistler. And I managed to kind of get a ski lesson. And it was at that moment that I was I was hooked completely. So that was February of 2016, family day, actually. Right. So, so you kind of skipped over that uh, swingers party there. Is that a normal kind of kind of event that you would do? That sounds kind of wild. It, it definitely is wild. Um, I will say that the life of a DJ, you get to see all kinds of crazy things, and that is definitely not the craziest. <laughs> <laughs> what, what what were some other you, you have any you can toss out to us real quick just in your in your when you write your DJing book one day maybe a little preview yeah I mean the, the things you get to see with regards to the private parties one of the most amazing private parties that I, that I got to go to was in a an underground military bunker in Ibiza that this guy had purchased that was in the theme of the movie Eyes Wide Shut you know again kind of like with that sex mm-hmm. theme. And just like the amount of money that goes into the production behind these things, um, you know, I've, I've DJed at sex party, you know, all kinds of crazy things that you would imagine in like the, the, the biography of a rock star. I mean, <laughs> DJs of the past decade or two have kind of taken up that mantle. Right. OK, so so you get up to the swingers party and you're in you're in Whistler and you decide to take a ski lesson. How did that first day go? Uh, so I took a lesson. I just, I think it was like a two hour lesson. Um, and they were just taking us down the green slopes, pizza and French fries and all of that stuff. And after the lesson finished, I, I, I tend to like to brute force problems. It's my engineering mindset. You'll probably hear me throw a lot of numbers out. And I like to use numbers to gamify things and to, to track and, and to improve and to compete against myself. And so I, fe- I went to the top of the uh, green slope by myself after I'd left the lesson and just kind of threw myself down. And I fell 27 times the first time. And I, I wasn't put off. That became the metric. That became the bar. So I went straight up and did the exact same slope over and over and over again, finishing the day, um, getting down that slope after only seven falls. So there was progress. Okay. And that's just the way I approach things. I, I kind of like to just brute force things and keep doing it over and over again. If there's a, uh, like a, a metric that I can use to compare myself and compete against myself. Um, and I knew that the, the prize was in the back of my head, getting to Micah, getting back and, and heli skiing. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of um, motivation and enthusiasm to, to keep at it. And, and this is important, especially because the region I focus on and, and where the listeners are focused is the Northeast of the United States, which tends to be very icy. So how were the yeah. conditions on that first day when you got out? So because it was um, family day, it was like learning to ski on a, like learning to walk on a highway. Basically, I remember most of my falls were created by people zooming past me or me being uh, me not wanting to hit other people. So kind of throwing myself to the ground. And I can still remember it to this day. There was one corner that even after the second day of doing it, I just could not do because of the because of the icy conditions. You know, of course, my second day of skiing on a mountain, you don't have the edge control to be able to deal with those kind of super icy conditions. And so I really, really struggled. And I still remember the torture of that one corner to the day. It it was not a powdery day. And and also, as a beginner, you do not go off piste, right? 
So do you ever get back to Whistler and just blast around that corner? Just that personal You know, I, I'm, I'm dying for the day to do that. Absolutely. I'll have to try and figure out exactly which, which corner it is, but I'm, I'm so keen to put on my skinny race skis and rip around that corner. Yeah. Probably do it backwards. <laughs> <laughs> so you were there for this one gig. I'd imagine you had to keep moving. How long was it until you could get back on skis for day two? Yeah, so day two was, um, I took a day off. We went um, sledding or snow moto, which is the bike version of sledding, because I didn't want to be there on the Monday of family day or President's Day weekend, because I thought it would just be a zoo, which it was. So I only got two days of skiing on that trip. And then it wasn't for a, a whole year that I got to get in a few more days of skiing. Um, I was in Mammoth searching for a location for our festival. Uh, we were considering changing the location. So I was location scouting in Mammoth and, uh, in, sorry, in California. And Mammoth had had, I believe it was 14 feet of snow that came down in three days or something like that. It shut the town down. That's about right for Mammoth. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm like, I'm going to go ski. And so I went up to Mammoth and got four or five days of skiing. In. And honestly, that's where I really figured it out. Um, a friend of mine um, owns a hotel up there. And I met him for lunch on my first day of skiing. We had a beer. And after lunch, he's like, look, let's, let's go ski something. And I, I was completely against the idea. He'd been skiing since he's two. He's in his 40s. He skis you know, well over 120 days a year in Mammoth. This was day three for me. And you know, he, he, he managed to convince me to get onto a black run by my third or fourth run with him. And I, I yard sailed, of course, but I didn't die. And the fact that I didn't die kind of let me know that I could do it somewhat safely. And I just spent the rest of that trip trying to get down black runs. And this is like, you know, day three, day four, day five of my skiing experience. I have these awesome videos of me just sliding hundreds of feet down these runs, <laughs> but just trying to figure it out. Um, didn't get to ski again until the end of 2017, went back to Revelstoke and my ninth day of skiing ever was heli skiing back at Micah. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, and, and how did you do heli skiing? worst most most difficult day of skiing of my life um as as your listeners may know when you're skiing in deep deep powder like bottomless powder when you fall over it can be like the end of the day event like the amount of energy you expend trying to just get back up onto the skis mm -hmm. everything you start to overheat goggles start to fog up then they freeze y yeah it was you know i only did two or three runs but i did it it was challenging yeah yeah, if you can even find your skis, they set you up with some nice powder boards at least. Yeah, exactly. So um, what do they use up there? Black Crows, 130 underfoot, 125 underfoot. Since that time, have you had a chance to get back there and just stop it out? Oh, yeah. So I was up there last Christmas um, with uh, Lindsay Dyer, big big mountain skier, Travis Rice, uh, Christy, uh, Christy Griffiths, who was an uh, Olympian in 2014, had uh, Christy Leskin in as well, like had an epic, epic time. And I have some incredible videos from this trip. That's got to be satisfying to go back yeah, and check that out. Totally. So, so you're, so you're incrementally getting better, trying out different things. Sounds like a very wide range of conditions. Uh, but meanwhile, you were still DJing. When did you decide to retire from DJing and why did you decide to move on from that part of your life? Yeah. So my last gig was in the Ukraine in November of 2018 and I'd kind of felt for a few years before that, that my, my heart wasn't in it as much as it was at the start. Um, when you first get to get the opportunity to perform for hundreds, thousands of people, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a great job and you feel so blessed to do it. And I, I never regret anything that I did. And I had such a great time with it. 
But after a while, it starts to take a bit of a toll on the body. Um, on average, I would be on, pl on a plane every third day. And you really don't get the same kind of experience of a place when you're only there for 12 hours or 36 hours. You, you, you know, everything kind of molds and meshes into being the same thing. It's what hotel room am I waking up in and which city is this? And, you know, it, it starts to become a little bit fatiguing. So I was thinking about what the next thing could be. Um, and I knew I would say from the end of 2016 that I was looking for something else. And besides, I, I'd gotten to travel to the majority of the countries that I wanted DJ to, to DJing to take me to. I'd also DJed in most of the bucket list clubs that I really wanted to. And so with the kind of 80-20 rule, I'd weighed, I, you know, I'd done more than 80% of what I wanted to achieve, knowing that to get that, you know, tick those last 20% of boxes off would be a lot harder. I just kind of was happy with what I achieved with it. Is there an element of DJing because you're going into these environments where people are having the best night of their lives, right? And they're up for it and they're, and they're amped and they're, you know, putting God knows what into their body. Mm -hmm. Is there an element of it where it just is exhausting to be up like that all the time? Yeah. I mean, I was always nocturnal as a kid, as a very young kid, I was always nocturnal. Um, and so I guess I just slid into that nightlife very, very easily. But yeah, it, it can be fatiguing if, you know, I've had many gigs where I'm injured or where I'm, um, where I'm sick and, you know, you're there, you're kind of like, you're on stage, you need to perform, you need to bring it. And that, that is very, very tiring. Um, and it's those moments that you really kind of begrudgingly do, but that's your service. Um, that's, that's the job, that's the profession you've chosen. And that's the, the, the service that you're giving to the people that have paid money to come and see you play. And is it hard not to get sucked into the partying, into the drinking, into the drugs, into all the things that are going around? And I'm sure they're all being offered to you. Is, is it hard to step away from that? You know, I think with a lot of things, you, you see what excess does to people. Um, because as you said, you're coming into this city um, or you're coming into this, this, this country and that might be the only big night that that city sees for the entire week. Whereas as a, whereas as a DJ, an international DJ, you might do that three times a week and you're, you're doing that for like 45 weeks of the year. So mm -hmm. after a while, it becomes very easy to say no, to kind of remove yourself from that because you're not on the same wavelength as the people that you are performing for. They're there and they have this one brief snapshot that might be you know, their big night out of the week. Whereas for you, it, it, it becomes a profession. And if you look at, um, if I look to all of my friends that are n have now realized the opportunity they have, the, the money that can be made, they've all just, you know, this is now a business. Let's take this very seriously. And we'll, let's, let's grab the opportunity that we have in front of us with both hands. So you decide to step away. You're still in your 30s at that point. Uh, yeah. You know, you have this finance background. There's, there's a lot of choices you can make, right, about what to do with your time. Yeah. What was it about skiing? that made you decide, okay, this is what I'm going to focus my energy on from this point forward? There is nothing quite like the feeling of flying down a hill at like 65 miles an hour with nothing other than gravity doing that. There's something so liberating about that. I've spent a lot of time at Revelstoke. Revelstoke has the highest uh, skiable vert in all of North America, 5,700 feet. Um, they're, they're renowned for their powder, but on dry days when it's groomers, it is just bliss. There's literally one run when you could talk for about a, you could talk for a whole minute, mm -hmm. and 
it's just like there's something so magical about that feeling and i think all of your listeners can uh, associate with the, the the joy of like being out in nature um these incredible this incredible scenery these amazing conditions being up early in the morning being healthy being active and going fast and so i was looking for what would be the next chapter in my kind of crazy life as, as you've kind of dig, dug into a little bit here and you know, in 2018, as things were coming to an end with DJing, um, a friend of mine set up an event in Revelstoke called Send It, which is a gathering of about 150 to 200 people. It changes year to year. Um, predominantly tech entrepreneurs that gather for five days of skiing on this mountain. And at that moment, I, I got to ski with a, a, you know, a lot of world-class skiers. It was fun to be in that, in that zone with them. And the following month, I jumped on a plane and went to South Korea to be a spectator at the Olympics. So at the Olympics in Korea, I, I noticed that there were only three athletes representing my, my father's nation of Jamaica. And so kind of like a seed of an idea was formed back then. It was almost like a pipe dream kind of thing, you know, or even just a joke. Because the funny thing is, when you are mixed race, you're always the, the white person in the group of black friends, and you're always the black person in the group of white friends. So in all of my ski trips... I would always be the Jamaican on ice or the Jamaican speedster or there'd be some reference to cool runnings. So the, 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 the idea kind of started as just as a joke. As 2018 progressed, I then got the opportunity to ski in Niseko in Japan. I got the opportunity to ski in Patagonia on both sides. Um, and, and it was really 2018 when I became hooked. At this point, it was still just a seed of an idea, a pipe dream. But in 20, the start of 2019, I went back to Revelstoke again for that event, Send It, and we decided to spend a whole month on the mountain. And I decided that if I could survive a month of high-speed skiing with my terrible kind of kamikaze technique that I had back then, then I would look further into this idea of getting to the Olympics. Now, on day five of that trip, I had the opportunity to ski with Gordon Gray, former U.S. national skier, and I told him about my crazy idea. And he said, okay, let, let's see how you ski. After a day of skiing together, he said, okay, I'm going to be brutally honest. Um, your technique, absolutely atrocious, right? But that's to be expected. You've had, what, 20, 25 days of skiing up until now? He said, the one thing I can't figure out is how you are keeping up with me. I've been skiing since <laughs> I was two years old. I'm a former national level skier. It just, I, I'm blown away. You're absolutely fearless. And he said, I'll be, I'll be honest with you, like, not having fear means you have more than half the battle won because we can teach you technique. It's so much harder, if not impossible, to try to remove fear from someone's kind of psyche. And it was Gordon that really helped me understand how the whole fist point system works, which discipline would be best suited to my abilities, and how to kind of like go about getting uh, approval from my National Olympic Committee and all of the other administrative tasks that I would need to now launch this bid for the Olympics. So take us through that process from that day. <laughs> when he said, look, you're, you're courageous, but, but you're not very good. Like, how did you then go get to the point where you could feasibly qualify for these GS events and qualify for the Olympics? So take us through that process of learning and honing your technique. Uh, and then on the other side, the, the, the administrative part of how did you actually put yourself up as a candidate for the Olympic Games? Great. So I'll go, I'll answer them in reverse. So the admin side of things. Um, first of all, I needed to get Jamaican citizenship. My father was, uh, as I said, born in Jamaica, um, but 
had only been back to the country once, so he himself didn't even have a, a British uh, a Jamaican passport. I found out that the administration of getting Jamaican citizenship was pretty easy. Um, I managed to track down the Jamaican Ski Federation. We actually do have a Jamaican Ski Federation mm-hmm. and, and tell them about my my idea and, and what I was working on. So I've had a lot of support from them and from the Jamaican Olympic Association. Um, and they were the people that went out and registered me with the Federation International to Ski to get my uh, FIS license. So that was the admin side of things, which was actually a, a lot easier than I thought. Then with regards to kind of like honing my skills and, and deciding how to train, um, I found a ski coach randomly online on Reddit. And I posted, how would one go about getting 140 fist points? And the internet being the internet, there was a lot of stupid answers that you just like ignore, delete, delete. And then one guy, Mike Schneider, shout out to Mike. Mike was like, hey, you know, I teach U16 here in Canada. I'm the exact person you need to speak to. A lot of my kids graduate from me at around about that that level, like 140, 160, now 160, they changed the points, but around about that level. He then proceeds to write me an entire dissertation of what I should do, what mountains to ski, what equipment to get, what type of races I should go to, um, what books I should read for like sports psychology, basically a whole master plan to get me from zero to Olympian. I won't say hero, but zero to Olympian. Uh, And I've been following that plan. So the plan for the 2020 season that just finished was to spend as much time as possible on snow. I did 181 days of skiing. Um, and to get to about 10 races, I managed to get to six. I lost the last four of the season because of COVID. Um, and he said, look, the races you're going to do in the 2020 season are not about being competitive. They're about understanding how the system works. And realistically, they're about making the mistakes that you're going to inevitably make, but making them when it doesn't matter. He's like, get out there and just figure out how the races work. In the 2021 season, the aim for you is to hit about two dozen races and that's where you'll qualify. So I've been following that that kind of master plan to the T. And as far as the technical part of it goes, how did you improve your technique and, and channel that fearlessness into actually going down the mountain in a way that would help you qualify for some of these races? Yeah, so I've been to a couple of uh, ski race camps. I first attended a ski race camp on Mount Hood last uh, last August with Will Gregoric, who's a kick-ass skier. He uh, got down to seven fist points in his prime. He was up there with Bodie and all of those guys. He unfortunately didn't make the Olympics because of uh, an injury. So I had five days of training with him. Um, I've had a bunch of days of training uh, in, in Jackson. And I just actually finished a, uh, a ski camp, the ADL ski camp with the Mayer brothers on Mount Hood again just a couple of weeks ago. So I've been using those things to kind of guide me. And then again, just true to how I started the sport, I got a pair of race skis and I just brute forced the understanding of how to turn these skis, how to make these skis work. And honestly, now I love my GS 30 meter skis, like as much as I love my kind of freestyle kind of mess around skis. Like I have so much fun out there with them that I just have them on most of the time. Is there any, like going back to the mental part of it, is there anything here that's transferable from your time as a DJ? And what I mean by that, there's, there's a rhythm to skiing. There's a performative element to it. It seems like DJing has a lot of those same attributes. And you, you kind of, with DJing, from the way you describe it, came out of nowhere, figured out the scene, found your entry point, got into it. Is there, is there anything transferable about that experience or the experience of being a DJ to skiing? Yeah, well... 
when I first got my decks, I was completely enamored with how they worked and learning how to make them sound good and would happily put hours upon hours upon hours of, of training in to understand the the art of beat matching, which is kind of like a lost art now because all of the kids can just press sync on, on the new technology. And so there's that hard work ethic that both of them require that was you know transferable from one to the other. And then with both of them, I feel that perhaps with any industry, there's a certain element of understanding how to surround yourself with the right people, how to be unafraid to ask for help, how to be unafraid to make mistakes. Um, and so I think there's a lot of similarities in the two of them. And similarly, when I do get to races that have bigger crowds, I feel like I'll be more accustomed to it because I've you know, played in front of thousands of people before. I've been on stage in front of thousands of people. So hopefully that will remove some of the nerves element when I get to that, that stage in my race career. So as you're setting up for that, you settled down in Jackson last year to just mm -hmm. grind it out for the season. Uh, why was that an appealing place for you? Again, the same guy that got me into skiing, Tom, has a beautiful house up there. I was considering, I was trying to figure out which mountain I wanted to uh, base myself on for, for race training. And Tom was just like, look, my, my house is empty most of the time. Uh, and even when it's not empty, you're more than welcome to be there. It's big enough for all of us. Like, have at it. So I moved to Jackson at the end of October. And I've just had such a wonderful time out there. The mountain is incredible. Uh, there's also easy access to Snow King, which is in the town. There's a couple of fist races at Snow King. And it's a great training mountain as well. Um, and just it's it's a very, very cool cosmopolitan town in the middle of America. It's a, it's a, it's a strange one, but it's great. Yeah, Jackson Hole is legendary as, as this really wild mountain. Uh, obviously, terrific free skiing scene there. Uh, yeah. but, I, but I never really was tuned into any kind of racing scene there. How strong is that community there in Jackson Hole and Snow King? It's mostly on Snow King, yeah. So they have the steepest fist race in the North American calendar at Snow King, which will hopefully be my first race of the 2021 season in the middle of December. And, you know, you have several hundred kids up there um, during training. It's, it's legit. So do you ever go out, though, and get after it with the free skiing guys, jump off some rocks, just do some stuff to mix it up? Too much. <laughs> Jack Jackson is such a fun mountain that I'm going to be honest and say it's probably a little detrimental to my focus on race training. Because when you've had, you know, 12 inches, 14 inches overnight, you don't want to pull the race skis out. There's, there's much, there's, there's many other things that you can be doing on the mountain. So I do that too much. It's uh, that needs to be a, a realignment of focus in this 2021 calendar uh, season to be very, very maniacal about just being on my race skis. Does it help though? I mean, I don't race, uh, but you know, if I'm skiing trees all day and then at the end of the day, I take a groomer down, I mean, the groomer feels like, like I could do it in my sleep. It just doesn't, you know, because you're so used to having to react to everything in front of you. Yeah. So when you go out and you mix it up in Jackson hole and all the crazy stuff they have there and you're, you're crushing powder all day and then you come on to the, to the groomers or, or back onto the race course, do you feel like it's kind of reset that and, it, and it's easier in a way? Well, I would say that, I mean, I've had that experience before. It's almost like when you're going through trees, you almost have this meditative, like laser focus on survival, basically, right? You're going through trees fast and then you come out and you come out onto a groomer or you even come out onto a mogul. And it's like those moguls are not there because like in comparison to, to the trees, it just feels so much easier, at least the experience that I've had with that. 
But what I will say is that there are definitely transferable skills. And one of the, the biggest upticks in my skill set has been towards the end of the season where you are kind of like skinning up something or bootpacking up something. And the conditions are incredibly variable and even incredibly variable on that very same run, depending on elevation, depending on what aspect of the mountain you're on. And just being like laser focused and tuned into exactly what's happening under your skis as it changes, like every hundred feet or every hundred yards or whatever it may be, that has been incredible for my skiing. And there are many things that I skied at the end of the season that I would have just hated and not wanted to go anywhere near um, at the start of the season. So there's definitely transferable skis when you take off your race skis and and go and do uh, you know free skiing and, and other fun stuff. Yeah. So when Jackson Hole closed down, you went backcountry for a long time, right? Yeah. So so when after you did that and your you know every day in the backcountry is different, you know the, the exposure is different, everything that you just said. So then when you got to Mount Hood for that camp. Were you like, oh, th- this is easy compared to, you know, hiking up 4,000 vertical feet and then coming down, you know, through, you know, a couple hundred yards of cement and then a couple hundred yards of corn and, and you know, how it, 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 it's variable down the mountain. So did you have a nice entry back into actually going onto a groomed slope and skiing? It was absolute bliss. As you said, you know, <laughs> you have the you have the consistent groomed, beautiful conditions and then you also have the ability to just kind of park your butt on a chairlift and have that thing take you up a couple thousand feet, as opposed to all of the energy that I'd uh, exerted over the previous few months from, from, from the backcountry. I mean, to give you an example, my last day of skiing was the 5th of August, and we went into the Tetons, and we skied something called the Cave Couloir. It's this really nice thousand-foot little pitch. But being in the Grand Teton National Park, there's no motorized vehicles. So to get to that 1,000 foot of snow, the round trip hike was 12 miles, which I did oh in my, my ski boots, um, 4,000 elevation total, because most of it is kind of melted. And I went up there with Breezy Johnson, who's current U.S. downhiller, and uh, Lindsay Dyer, who's a big mountain professional. They, they, I don't think they were very happy. It was my idea. It was a lot of work. We were out there for over eight hours just to get that 1,000 foot. <laughs> and it wasn't even good conditions. <laughs> Well, I, I, if anyone listening to this is questioning whether you're a real skier because you didn't start so late, they will not question after hearing that story because that's what skiers do. They ski any amount of snow. Like out here in the east, um, every year, Killington is the last mountain open. I don't know how much you've skied in the east or the northeast, but basically they blow about 30 foot deep on this one run called Superstar. Right. And they just keep this one lift spinning all the way into June. Now it's the Northeast. All the natural snow has long ago melted, but it's part of their brand. The beast of the East, they have this long season and they, they promise that to their pass holders, keep going till the very end. And people from out West see it and they're like, why are you guys still skiing this? But it's, it's just that drive to just do it as much as you can. And, and you've definitely picked up on that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm so desperate to get back on snow right now. I'm super, I'm like, you know, I'm fanatical about it. Absolutely love it. I definitely have the bug. And it's funny because as Snow King melted out, at the very end, there was this one patch left with like two feet of snow, basically two feet of snow. Mm-hmm. And everyone in the house was just kind of like joking. Hey, Benji, you, sh- you should get up there. It's still, it's still skiable. <laughs> oh, nice. Did you get up yeah. there? I did not. I missed it by one day, unfortunately. But I'm actually super keen to get out to the East Coast and ski some of your ice because what's really interesting 
is you can ski the exact same run as I quite often do in Jackson. You'll do, ski it in like my powder skis, uh, which are like, you know, 110, 114 under feet. And then you ski it in your race skis, which are like 67 under feet, underfoot. And you look at that exact same run completely differently. You come down in your powder skis and you're looking for the slushy stuff, the powdery stuff to turn in, right? To make your turn to hold you. You come down in those race skis and you are looking for that ice. You are right. looking to throw it onto that bare stuff and just whip a turn around. And, and they're, they're, they're kind of very similar, but also very, very different. And I love them both. And just the way that you have to look at and analyze that that run completely different, depending on the equipment that you have, is just awesome. I, I, I love it. I'm, I'm addicted. Well, we have no shortage of it out here. I mean, when, when it's good, it's good. Uh, but, but there's plenty of ice, plenty of the time. Um, so no snow for you right now. You're actually down in Jamaica. Is that right? Yes, it is. Yeah. And is is this your first time there? It is. Yeah. I'm embarrassed to say, you know, DJing took me all over the world. I've been to like a third of the world's countries. This is my 63rd country and my wow. first time getting to Jamaica. Um, the intention was to come out here a little bit sooner. Um, but obviously everyone's plans in 2020 just, just got destroyed. So I, I'm here now. Um, and the beautiful thing is, had it been a normal season, I'd be down in kind of Chile or, or New Zealand working on, on you know, continuing to ski down there. Because there aren't many great places to be right now, I mean, there's no better place than just kind of rediscovering my, my history, my lineage, my, my heritage. And so I, I've been here for a month. I've been here for a month today. I plan to stay all of September and perhaps even uh, most of October as well. So making up for lost time. Do you still have family down there? Very, 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 very distant. Um, I tried to go and uh, see them a couple of weeks ago, but my timing was horrendous. It was right when we had Hurricane Nana pass by. So my mm -hmm. father's town of birth was completely flooded. So I didn't get the opportunity to uh, meet up with anyone, but I've got time. I'll be back down there. Okay. So hopefully everyone's safe down there. Yeah. yeah. How, how have you been received there, Benjamin? Is there, did you have any concern about the fact that you grew up in England, you hadn't been to the country, your father was there, but it had been over 50 years. Was there any concern that maybe they wouldn't accept you? And, and how did that go? How has that gone? I don't think there was really any concern because First of all, I'm trying a sport that for the majority of people in Jamaica, they won't get the chance to to even try it in their life, sad to say. But Jamaica is an interesting one because there's you know 2.7 million people in the country, but there are 2 million Jamaicans outside of the country spread across England, United States and Canada. Um, so the diaspora is huge and a lot of the diaspora ski. Now, the Jamaicans obviously have huge exports, whether it's, you know, Bob Marley and, and the food and stuff like that. But one of the biggest exports is also Olympics, track and field. Usain Bolt is probably one of the most uh, famous Olympians of all time. Uh, and so presenting a story that I'm trying to represent the country in a discipline that's never been um, done before for Jamaica, I've been received with wide open arms. I've been on you know, a couple of breakfast time TV shows here already. I've been in the local newspaper and it's so nice. The, uh, you know, the people are proud of me already and I haven't even qualified. So it's great. It's, it's been so great. It's been amazing. And what's your impression of the country in general? So there are beautiful beaches, absolutely beautiful beaches, which is what a lot of people see from the outside looking in. Um, I must admit that I was quite surprised at the, uh, you know, the, the level of poverty when you dig a little deeper outside of the tourist hotspots. It's a small country, as I said, less than less than three million people. And so the size of the economy as a whole is 
is, is, is really small. I mean, I think GDP is less than 15 billion US, which is insane. Mm-hmm. Um, and the country lives on tourism. So it's, it's sad to see them struggle right now. But the, the, the borders are open, but people are just not traveling. People are scared. Right. And even if you do arrive, there's only a, a limited number of places that you can go that are open for tourists and you know, a limited area that you can travel within. So it, it's just you know, not, not many people have decided to come down. But if anyone's considering a holiday in Jamaica, it is fantastic. <laughs> and what's life like there during COVID? Are there a lot of restrictions? Yeah, so we just had the general elections last Thursday. And in Jamaica, they go crazy for their elections. It, it's more like a carnival, like a street parade. So they had to really clamp down on that and stop people from doing that. They were somewhat successful. Uh, so the side effect of that is obviously more people interacting, more COVID numbers. So they've just changed the national curfew to 8 p.m. Um, so mm. 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. No one's allowed to leave the house. And just a lot of things are shut. A lot of the hotels and restaurants have decided that they can't get enough people to make uh, make money. They just won't open. From my point of view, one of the things I was very, very keen to see, um, part, one, a part of the culture I was keen to be a part to see, was was it was really like the music and, and the nightlife side of things, obviously coming from being a, a former DJ. And that doesn't exist right now. With national mm. curfew, it's just, it's just not here. So hopefully things loosen up before I leave. So has the country been able to offer you any kind of support in your Olympic quest? Or is there any kind of official capacity they're able to help you out or, or, or just giving guidance or what's your relationship like with the official sort of Jamaican bureaucracy for lack of a better term? Yeah. So that's the Jamaican Olympic Association. Um, the, the beautiful thing about my timing is that the president of the JOA just took the post a couple of years ago from his predecessor who had had it for 40 years. So obviously in that 40 year history, the guy was incredibly successful. The number of medals that he'd, he'd seen under his watch now, Christopher Samuda is the new president. That's his name. He's, he has made it very clear that he's very keen to have Jamaica kind of differentiate um, their offering and, and where their talent goes uh, to try and make Jamaica known for more than just our sprinters. And so I feel like I've come into this at the exact right time. I have a lot of support from him with regards to connections to, to media and so forth. I, I haven't had the chance to meet some of the big brands, whether that's Red Stripe Sandals, et cetera, et cetera, um, because everyone's been so focused on the, the elections. I'm hoping now that that's in our rearview mirror. I'm just going to give it another few days and, and really start this next week. Hopefully I can start to get to meet all of these big brands and find some financial sponsorship down here and, and some help that way. The country doesn't have a huge budget to, to kind of throw me a, a five or a six figure sum to, to get this done, unfortunately. Right. You mentioned Cool Runnings earlier, which hmm. I'm sure most listeners have heard of. 1993 film based on the true story of the 1988 Jamaican bobsled team. Really inspirational story. Uh, that team, as far as I can tell, has stayed active and, and actually introduced a women's team. Um, is is Jamaica looking at, at your drive to make the Olympics as an opportunity to expand their presence and grow their presence in the Winter Olympic Games? Absolutely. They absolutely are. I mean, that is such an inspirational story. I was 10 years old when that came out uh, and that movie made me so proud to be Jamaican. And I think lots of people looked at that as a a very inspirational story. The pilot for the first Popset team, Dudley Stokes, is actually one of my mentors. We have a weekly call about sports nutrition, um, sports psychology, and he's, you know, he's part of the team. And I hope that my success at the Olympics, when we get there, 
can inspire another generation of people. And I think that's also what Christopher is looking at my bid as, like the ability to expand our offerings in the, in the Winter Olympics and get more Jamaicans, whether that's Jamaicans from the diaspora, such as myself, um, get more Jamaicans interested in, in winter sports. It sounds like you're helping to build a really, really cool legacy down there that, that has a lot of potential. Um, so I, I want to shift gears here. I want to talk about diversity a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's no secret, Benjamin, that skiing has traditionally lacked diversity. Uh, and in the national reckoning that we're going through in the United States following the May murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, we started to see more of an acknowledgement of that from the industry itself. The CEOs of the two largest ski companies, Vail and Altera, have both issued statements vowing to do better to build diversity in skiing, both as far as who is skiing and in the folks who actually run the mountains. Uh, first of all, Benjamin, what was your reaction to these statements? I actually heard that statement on your podcast. Was it Rusty oh. that you you had on the podcast? Uh, Rusty was on the podcast, and then uh, I also talked about it extensively with Henry Rivers, uh, the president yeah. of the National Brotherhood of Skiers. Yeah, and I actually reached out to Henry right after that podcast. So the Storm Skiing right. podcast has been super helpful for me and kind of like keeping me up to date. So thank you for that. Amazing. Um, I think it's about time. The you know, It's not because skiing is a racist sport. Absolutely not. Right. It's just because of those three things that we discussed right at the, the start of this uh with regards to geographic blessing, um, majority of ethnic minorities live in cities. Um, with regards to financial financial blessing, you know, it's, it's a very well known fact that the average minority doesn't make anywhere near as much as as, as white households. Um, and then with regards to just having your family, friends, or relatives do it, and you know, if if you, if you are the son or daughter of a first generation immigrant, it's very unlikely that they have the financial freedom to. Um, to, to go and ski or, or it's very unlikely they came from a place where skiing is a thing. So I think it's about time. I would love to see more minorities on the ski hill. And honestly, I think that's a big part of what my story is about to show people that there is joy in the sport. Uh, you know, skiing is hands down my favorite thing to do on the planet. I absolutely love it. And I think so many other people from, from minorities can find joy and fun and get something out of this sport. I think there's a there's a hesitance or a hesitation to do something that none of your friends do, or as Henry Rivers said, that 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 no one in the adverts is of the same skin color as you. Maybe they don't want me there. Um, so it, it's good that they're doing that, and I'm I'm, I'm I'm hopeful that what I'm doing can also go some way to to help other people see that there's a lot of fun in this sport and to to join in. Well, we do have a lot of folks from Vale and Altera who listen to this podcast. Any advice for them, Benjamin, on first steps on how to go about to achieve more representation and equity in the sport? Um, exactly what Henry said. It would be great to have some people of color that are in the adverts for their mountains. Um, I don't think there's much that they can do with regards to the behavior of other people on the hill. I mean, Henry said in your podcast that you know the sideways comments, although not meant in you know they're not they're not given in. in kind of harm or any disrespectful way that, oh, I never knew black people skied or whatever it may be. You know, those the, the mountains don't have any ability to kind of control those things, I don't think. That, that has to come from the people that are skiing. But maybe there's more inner city programs that they can do to help kids from um, you know, poorer neighborhoods to get access to the hill. I mean, one of the big barriers to entry is a lot of people feel that skiing is an expensive sport. 
Um, but there are ways around that. If you live close enough to get season passes and pick up secondhand gear or hand-me-downs, um, you know, maybe there's maybe these types of things that the, the mountain can help uh, people from minority families uh, help, help them with. Yeah, it's, a, it's that first time getting out, right? Because once you do it, you're like, wow, this is the best thing ever. Uh, well, m- maybe after the first day, um, if you can get to that. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's, it's those introductory programs. And uh, I had another guest, Sean Mallier, who runs an excellent little center right out here near New York City and New Jersey that brings children in uh, who otherwise would not have had experience on the slopes, but he brings them in in small groups and takes them through a program and gives them the gear, including the coat and the hat and all that stuff that really gives them that confidence to be out there. So there, there's definitely programs, but it's, you know, it's not that easy to do and it's expensive. So, um, but curious, you know, how your experience has been personally, Benjamin, how have you been treated as a black man showing up to a sport that is very white throughout most of the world? I have not had any problems at all, I can say. And, you know, as I said earlier about the, the jokes that were sent to me or kind of like directed at me on the mountain about you know, Jamaican and I's uh, you know, pool runnings, mm-hmm. I, I took them as, as good hearted because they were coming from my friends. Um, and right. I, I personally, you know, don't have thick skin. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see any problem with that. Um, but when I, when I'm out there racing, you have the typical racer is, you know, late teenage years, early twenties, uh, white, um, and there's no one else that that's all there is. So when they see me, you know, I, I'm not white, I'm six foot six and you know, I don't, I don't have the same gear as the rest of these guys. I stand out like a sore thumb, but everyone, the other racers, the race technicians have been so warm and so kind and so friendly to me. Um, you know, I have this video that was taken by a friend of mine when I skied at Sun Valley and literally like 40 or 50 of the other kids are cheering me for the, for the moment that I'm about to push through the Stargate. They've been, they've been phenomenal. I love that. Uh, so we're heading toward the Olympics, 2022 Winter Olympics, set for February 4th to 20th, 2022 in Beijing. Mm-hmm. Who knows if that will actually happen the way things are going. But as of now, that's the date you have to work toward. What are the milestones between now and then that you need to hit to qualify for the games? I know you touched on these a little bit earlier with your uh, with your next season race schedule, but but what does your path to the Olympics look like? Yeah, so just a quick point um, with regards to whether the Olympics will happen. Like, obviously, it's impossible to plan right now. Um, I feel that given the fact that a couple of reasons. One, the the Olympics in Beijing are costing China one-tenth of the price of the 2008 Games, so $4 billion mm-hmm. instead of $40 billion because they're reusing a lot of the infrastructure, which means they have a lot of additional cash to throw at other things. Secondly, after having spent um, you know, a decade in, in Asia and understanding the Asian mindset and, and the Chinese mentality, with people trying to assign blame for the virus and trying not to get political... Um, you know, calling it the the Chinese Chinese virus and, and whatnot. I feel like China will do absolutely everything they can to prove that it's possible to have a large scale event. Whether that means putting the entire Olympics in a bubble with no spectators, like the NBA, um, you know, mm-hmm. and the Olympics with just the athletes, coaches, and media is a hundred thousand people, so that's a huge bubble. Mm-hmm. But China, wow. of all countries, has the ability to throw manpower and money at things. So I feel very confident that the Olympics will happen. So I'm going to act completely as if. Whether Summer Olympics happens next year, I don't know. But but let's focus on the Winter Olympics. Now, with regards to milestones, 
I think it's really important for the listeners to understand how it's possible to go from never having skied to getting to Olympics in a very short period of time. Now, the spirit of the Olympics is that they want as many nationalities represented in as many disciplines as possible. And so to make that happen, um, they often have something called like a B-standard athlete. And there are, each country is allowed to put forward one B-standard athlete. So that is the qualification that I'm aiming for right now. A B-standard mm-hmm. athlete and I would try not to get too technical for people that don't listen to racing, just means I have to get to that 160 fist points that we spoke about earlier before. Fist points go down. So Ligeti is probably like single digit fist points right now uh, in giant slalom. Um, but to be at 160 fist points, as I said earlier, when speaking about Mike Schneider, the, the coach from Canada, that would be a good 16-year-old kid. So that's the level that I need to get to. Now, between here and the Olympics, I need to get back on snow. So the intention is hopefully to get down to Zermatt for October. I'm waiting for a first for a few more sponsors to roll in. Things have started to happen um, uh, to help fund that. If not, I'll just you know begin begin training in November when I get back to Jackson. And as I said earlier, the plan is to hit about two dozen races. If I have the ability to, I would love to just hit as many races as possible. And I believe that if 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 things if I can get to these races, I should be qualified by April or maybe even by the end of March, which is a whole like nine ten months ahead of the qualification deadline of January of 2022. And and so that is the last possible date to qualify is January 2022. You need to be at 160 fist points by January 2022. Yes. Okay. And in order to gain points in all these races, you're going to do this year what needs to happen in those races for you to get the appropriate number of points? Yeah, so points are calculated based on two things, your time compared to the winner uh, and then the the caliber of the field. So their fist points of top three are used to judge the caliber of the field that you're racing against, and that adds a handicap onto it, trying not to get complicated because it's insanely complicated. And then those two metrics are, are kind of, added together to give you what your fist score is for that race. So the closer you are to the field or, or you know, the winner, then the lower your fist points are. And your fist point uh, kind of standing is the average of your best two runs. Hmm. Okay. It's a little complicated. You... I'm trying not to get yeah. into the details. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so where's your confidence level at as far as being able to knock off these things you need to do to be there in Beijing? in about 18 months. So I like to use the, uh, you know, the Confucius saying the journey of a thousand miles starts with the first step. And, you know, this is a huge project that I've been you know, full-time with now for, for over a year, um, almost a year and a half. I've basically just been keeping my head down and ticking boxes. I have this entire thing mapped out with what I need to do, what I need to achieve. And I've just been ticking these boxes. I feel very confident that as long as the race calendar is somewhat normal, um, we don't know what's going to happen just yet. It's typically announced in October. But as long as the race calendar for the division which I'm racing in is somewhat normal uh, and I can get to enough races, as I said, I'll be, I'll be, I will be I'll will be qualified by April at the very latest of next year. Failing that, if, if things go a little weird, then they can hopefully get to the Southern Hemisphere next year. Let's hope that traveling is, is, is a little looser or they've figured out more you know, more effectively how to deal with the virus. Um, unfortunately, Chile doesn't even have a ski season right now. The mountains are not even open. So hopefully that changes next year. And then there are races in the Southern Hemisphere. And then, as I said, 
um, I, I've got all the way through until January of 2022 to qualify. So if need be, I could then hit some of the European races in October, November, December the following year, and even continue to hit races in, in Europe or the United States in January of 2022. So I have a big if if things don't happen as fast as, as I want them to. Well, it sounds like you have it all planned out. Uh, if anyone's listening and they want to support you, is there a way to do that? Best way to get in touch is uh, through Instagram right now, which is just uh, Benji, B-E-N-J-I dot ski, S-K-I. Um, there's lots of funny things. Uh, you can DM me there. You can see a lot of the press that um, has been released on me there. And yeah, I'm just really looking for sponsors and support right now. So if anyone knows anyone that is attached to a company that would like to be affiliated with uh, this rags to riches story, um, you know, the, the first ever Jamaican Alpine skier, then I'm all ears. I'm really happy to hear any, any info. Amazing. Well, it's a really inspirational story, Benjamin. I can't thank you enough for taking the time out to talk to us today. I'm wishing you the best of luck and rooting for you all the way. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That's Benjamin Alexander, aspiring Olympian. What an awesome story. That was my first podcast featuring a skier, but I hope it isn't my last because that was a lot of fun. Thank you very much for sharing that with us, Benjamin. I wish you the best of luck toward 2022 and beyond. Subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester. Talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.